It is a week three of our seven-week trip to the ruins of ancient Israel. We saw last week just what a state God's people were in in Malachi's day. A week later, and you won't be surprised to discover that nothing much has changed as we arrive in chapter 2. Today we are going back to the temple. We were there last week. Uh, we're going back to the temple. But this Sunday we are going particularly to meet with the priests. So come with me uh, and meet these priests uh, in Malachi chapter 2, page 961, if you can grab hold of a church Bible. And if you've got your own Bible and aren't sure where Malachi is, you'll find it uh, in the last book of the Old Testament, uh, just before the book of Matthew in the New As we arrive at chapter 2, I I want to apologise for the dreadful smell. Uh, I wonder if you've got a whiff of it yet. Uh, Perhaps you smelt it during the uh, reading earlier in the service. Um, If you're wondering where it's coming from, it's oozing out of verse 3. And uh, if your sense of smell isn't very good this evening, you'll get a real nostril full as I read from the RSV, where we read uh, this. This is how verse 3 is translated in the RSV. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence, says the Lord Almighty. Every day, many animals were brought to the temple for sacrifice. Sheep, goats, bulls, dozens of them passing through the temple, and none of them were potty trained. On special festival days, the amount of animals passing through the temple for sacrifice increased considerably, and so the amount of stuff passing through the animals onto the temple floor increased considerably as well. That's where the smell's coming from. Verse 3, from the dung, from the festival sacrifice. And and it's all over the priests. Again, verse 3 in the RSV, I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. It's not the sort of thing we expect when we visit the leaders of God's people to be covered in dung. And come to that, it's not the sort of thing we expect to hear from the Lord to be saying. Uh, My mum wouldn't let me speak to people like this and yet here is God saying it. It it is shocking language. What is going on? Well, this uh, in our first point is God's rebuke to the leaders. I look at verse 1. And now this admonition is for you, O priests. Uh, Do you remember last week we saw from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that the priests in Malachi's day didn't honour the Lord. They didn't show him the respect that was due to him. They'd become bored with serving the Lord. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 13. They were allowing God's people to bring duff animals for sacrifices. We saw that in verse 8. And all of that demonstrated that they had contempt for the Lord. Look again at chapter 1, verse 6. A son honours his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where is the honour due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. Now the Lord is saying, as he's warned them in chapter 1, he says, this can't go on, I'm warning you. This just cannot go on. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. If you do not listen to all that the Lord has been saying so far, if you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you've not set your heart to honour me. It's language that goes with the smell. It's very strong. The Lord God is not pulling his punches here. I will send a curse upon you. You may have been surprised to have heard God speak about dung on priest's face. 
you may be equally surprised to hear him speaking like this. But it's consistent with all that he's already said. This is the language of the Old Testament law. The law that the priests, of course, knew so well. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, uh, God promised blessings for his people when they obeyed him and he warned of curses coming upon them in their disobedience. Last week we saw just how disobedient they were. So it should be no surprise that God should speak like this. I will curse your blessings. And... uh, that really would have been a shock to the priest. There were many blessings in being an Old Testament priest. Let me tell you some of them. The priest never had to visit the meat counter at Tesco's because they were given a cut of the sacrifices. They had an honoured place in the community. They were respected by all the people. And one of the most coveted blessings was that their descendants had a job for life. Now, that's not a bad thing to have in this day and age. A job for life. Being born into the Levitical line, their sons would themselves become priests. So the blessings of being a Levite, the blessings of being in the Old Testament priesthood were considerable. But the blessings were conditional upon obedience. Don't think that God will just bless you by turning up. And God won't be mocked. If they or we show contempt for God, especially as a leader of his people, he will rebuke. We saw it when Jesus walked this earth just in case you think this is a bit Old Testament, as if the Old and New Testament are different. Remember how Jesus spoke to the leaders of his day. You might like to uh, uh, keep uh, something in Malachi 2 and turn on just a couple of pages to Matthew uh, chapter 23, the second of the two readings we had, page 991, and see how Jesus speaks to the leaders of his people. Page 991. See, as you're finding it, you'll see that whenever God speaks to the leaders of God's people, he is always firmer with them than with the people. And rightly so. Because otherwise they lead people astray. Look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They do not practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. In case you think that's just me saying that, turn over and you'll see it's what Jesus says. Look on to verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Look at verse 27. That isn't strong enough for you. Look at verse 27. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside you appear to be people as righteous but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. That's Jesus speaking. God does not mince his words when he's dealing with those who lead his people. Let me tell you, as I've been studying this this week, I've been terrified. And so as we return to Malachi chapter 2, God is warning the priest, unless you change, all your privileges will come to an end. That's what's going on in verse 3. See, because of you I'll rebuke your descendants, I will spread on your faces the offal, the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. In verse 3, God is doing three things. Firstly, he's giving the priest the sack. He's terminating their employment. This is handing them their P45. 
Bull dung on their faces was an end of their job because uh, there were very strict cleanliness laws in the Old Testament. If you were unclean, you could not enter God's presence. And bull dung on your face, or if I can put it this way, feces on your faces, certainly made you unclean. So the Lord was sending them packing off to the job centre to join the many on job seekers' allowance. That's what he's doing in verse 3. Second, by putting dung on their faces, the Lord was causing the priests to be despised and humiliated among the people. He says that in verse 9. Do you see it there? I've caused you to be despised and humiliated. And let's face it, bull dung on your face hardly makes you the most popular guy in town, does it? Imagine sitting next to one of these guys. Mm, nice aftershave, new from Calvin Klein. Essence of bull dung for the priest who's given up trying. The Lord was humiliating the priests, causing them to be despised among the people because the Lord didn't want his people to be following these leaders. So the Lord was giving them the sack. He was causing them to be despised and humiliated. And third, he was indicating what their hearts were like by putting this bull dung on them. See, slapping bull dung on their faces was kind of a visual sign for all to see what they were like deep down. What you've got all over your faces reflects the state of your heart. Your heart is full of bull dung. Your heart is against me. So, verse 3, I will spread on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. You're off to the dung heap, or the scrap heap if you like. You're no good to me as you are and you're no good to my people, says the Lord. You're sacked, get out of here. Now be sure, this is not an unprovoked fit of rage. The Lord is compassionate and gracious and, know how it goes next? Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. He is slow to anger. When the Lord speaks like this, it must be bad. So of course it makes you wonder what the priests had done that was so bad. Well, it brings us to our second point over the, over the page, that the sin of the leaders. We've seen the problem already. The priests had contempt for God, chapter 1, verse 6. In their hearts they dishonoured God, chapter 2, verse 2. But what has really struck me this week is how that contempt is worked out. How we spot it. And it's really quite surprising. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. The Lord says, you've turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You've violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I cause you to be despised and humiliated before the people because, why? You've not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. It's that last phrase that that is so crucial here. You have shown partiality in matters of the law. They were, if you like, choosy with the bits of the Bible they taught. They They were partial. Seems such a small thing, doesn't it? Seems such a small thing. But, but listen, what this is saying is when you are partial in teaching the Bible, you are showing contempt for the Lord. You are saying, Lord, you may have written your word, but I'll choose what parts are relevant to teach. See the problem? Showing contempt for God. Yeah, he's given us the Bible, but I'll make the decision, thanks very much. The thing is, it's not easy to spot. It's very subtle. See, these priests were teaching the Bible. They were. Just they weren't teaching all of it. 
being partial in their teaching. The events of chapter 1 are a, I was going to say a good example, a bad example really, but they're an example of how they were being partial in matters of the law. That the priests were teaching the need to bring sacrifices to the temple. I guess they would open the scriptures and teach the people that they should sacrifice animals. That's why the people were doing it. Problem is, they weren't teaching that only unblemished animals were fit for sacrifice. See, that is showing partiality in matters of God's law. Just teaching the bits of the Bible we want to teach. And when we do that, we are showing contempt for God. And the thing that is so awful is that this is desperate. This is rife among church leaders today. Now look, before I go any further, let me step to one side because I've just made a huge leap and I need to tell you how I got there. I have just made a huge leap from Old Testament priests to church leaders today and it's not a leap that I actually want to encourage easily. Uh, Let's be clear, I've put some notes on here so you don't have to scribble these notes down. Let's be clear that the Old Testament priesthood ended when Jesus came. Jesus is the great high priest. There's no need for the Levitical priesthood anymore. Indeed, Jesus is the fulfilment of the entire Old Testament law. So we don't need to go to a temple because he is the temple. He, Jesus, is the place where we meet God. We don't have to go to a special place to meet God. We don't need to make sacrifices because Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice. This is not an altar, this is a table. We don't have altars in the, in the church any longer. I know some people think they do. Altars have gone. There are no more sacrifices made. Jesus is the one perfect sacrifice. Died on the cross. We don't need sacrifices anymore. We don't need a priest to intercede for us because Jesus always lives to intercede for us. As Christians, we don't need any human being to stand between us and God. Jesus is our access to God, we read in Hebrews 10. All those priestly duties have been fulfilled in Jesus. That is why it's so unhelpful to call today's church leaders priests. But while the Old Testament priesthood has ended, there is one role that the Old Testament priests had that has now been handed on to church elders and that is the role of teaching the Bible. And when we come to Malachi chapter 2, that is the issue that is being dealt with here. And so generally, when we read about the priests in the Old Testament, we should be thinking about Jesus as the fulfilment of that Old Testament priesthood. But today, as we look at Malachi 2, because it's the one thing that the priest did that elders do today, we can make that leap. And so as we see the priests of Malachi's day being partial in their teaching and as we see that that partiality demonstrates their contempt for God and as we see how seriously the Lord takes that we do need to beware when church leaders are doing the same thing today and let me tell you they are desperately many church leaders throughout the land are being partial in their teaching Take the issue of God's love. We've been thinking about it already today with those books that we've been holding up. I don't think I've ever come across a Christian minister who wouldn't speak of God being a God of love. And that is right. God is love. 1 John chapter 4. But he's also a holy God. And sin and evil and wickedness is an affront to God. And wonderfully, God is just. So he won't just turn a blind eye to wickedness. I wouldn't want to follow him if he did. Indeed, God's love demands that he punish evil. 
God's love is not a wishy-washy, sentimental type of love. But many church leaders today teach that God is love and therefore that he won't punish sinners. Now can you see how saying that God is love but never teaching that he is holy and just is being partial with the truth? It is failing to tell the whole truth. And when I don't speak the whole truth, I am speaking half-truths. And half-truths are lies. And when I'm doing that, I'm showing contempt for God. But it is very hard to spot. I was converted when I went to a guest event at my brother's, uh, the church that my brother was part of. Uh, and, uh, he, but he lived 40 miles away. He'd invited me down for the weekend so that, uh, so that I'd spend some time with him, but also so that I'd go to this uh, special church event. And, and I became a Christian that night. And so when I went home, 40 miles away, I wasn't going to travel to his church every, every Sunday. Uh, and so I, I had to find a church local to me. And being a brand new Christian, I na- naively thought that it would be okay to go to any church. And I became involved in a local church, and I went along for 18 months or so, before I heard the minister say that because God is a God of love, everyone would go to heaven. And while I was still a relatively young Christian, I'd only been a Christian for 18 months, I'd read my Bible for every day for the past 18 months, and so I knew that what the minister said wasn't true. And so I went to see him and I asked him about it, and we had a lovely chat over a cup of tea, but it became clear that he didn't believe in God's holiness and God's justice. And while I found it hard to argue against him, I knew that what he was saying wasn't right because I'd read my Bible. But the point is this, I'd sat in that church for months and months and I'd heard that God is love, which is true. But I hadn't heard the whole truth. And that is why this is so dangerous. It's not just speaking, it's not speaking obvious lies, but can I say it again? When we don't tell the whole truth, we are telling half-truths and my mum taught me that half-truths are lies and she's right. This partial teaching of the truth is is blighting the church in this land. Church leaders do it with the issue of unity. One of the great clarion calls of the leadership of the Church of England is the call to unity. We should be united. It sounds good. Christians should be united. The Bible tells us to be united. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a very good chapter to look at on unity. It's a sign of the work of the Spirit, unity. It's fantastic. The Bible tells us to be united in Christ. But church leaders tell us to bury our differences, to be united because we're all Anglicans. At that point, unity is held up at the expense of truth. But read Ephesians 4 and you'll see that unity comes through what we believe. You and I are united in what we believe. That is what unites us in Christ. But today, truth is sacrificed on the altar of unity. And on the issue of unity, many church leaders are being partial in their teaching. And I'll say it again, partial truth is not the whole truth. It's half-truth, which is lies. It is partial truth in the church that is confusing the debate over sexuality and not least of all homosexuality. So again we hear some church leaders saying that God is love and he's created us to love and they say that God is not, uh, does not object to two faithful and loving human beings expressing their love in sex. And it's true but it's only half true isn't it? For God has clearly stated in his word that sex is only for a monogamous heterosexual relationship. 
When people are partial with the truth, they're not telling the whole truth. They're telling half-truths, which means they're lying. And when we are partial with God's truth, we are, con- we are showing our contempt for God. We are saying, I don't care what you have said, God. This is what I want to say. This is the bit I like. And church leaders have no right to do that. And the effects of that on others is devastating. Look at verse 8. He says to these leaders, you've turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. Teaching half-truth causes people to stumble. I met with a church leader not very far from here over the summer and he told me that he teaches his congregation that they don't have to get married to have sex. As long as they're in a faithful relationship, that's all that matters. He's causing people to stumble because it does matter. Now look, I take no pleasure in speaking like this. I I don't enjoy highlighting the false teaching that is happening in the churches in this land. I do it with sadness. I have a heavy heart tonight. But I do it because partial teaching causes people to stumble and to fall. Being partial with the truth has eternal consequences. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. If you turn away from the truth, you turn away from Jesus. And it is the truth, Jesus, who alone brings you to the Father. The truth matters for salvation. And the truth matters now. If we don't live Jesus' way, we stumble and fall in life. Uh, We'll see that next week. In the next section, in verses 10 to 16, we'll see how the leader's failure to teach the truth was having a devastating effect on the people, and not least of all, in their relationships. Leading God's people is a serious business. I have felt the weight of this this week. Getting it wrong has serious consequences. No wonder the Lord was angry with these leaders. And no wonder the Lord caused these leaders to be despised and humiliated among the people in verse 9. He didn't want people to follow these leaders. And when I read that about the leaders of that day being despised and humiliated, I I, I can't but make the parallel with today. Isn't that what's happening with church leadership today? Clergymen used to be respected in society. Now they are a bit of a laughing stock, aren't they? And if you don't believe me, look at the way clergymen are presented in the soap operas. Clerics in the soap operas are usually a bit of a drip. Someone with no backbone, somebody you laugh at. That's what's going on here, you see. The Lord has caused people, has caused people to be despised among the people because they're being partial with the truth. This is a serious warning to the leaders of of our churches and this must primarily be to them. But can I say, uh, take the warning if you have any sort of teaching role in the church, home group leader, youth group leader, Sunday school teacher. It's very helpful the way John prayed for the the leaders um, of our nation uh, and the leaders of our churches, uh, the leaders of these those camps and those house parties that will be teaching children. Very helpful. Christian leader, you have a responsible position. Let me urge you to teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, not the bits you like. 
Don't be partial in your teaching. That kind of teaching is no good to God because it does no good to your hearers. And anyway, who do you think you are to be able to pick and choose which bits of God's word you will teach? It just shows that you have contempt for God. So let me encourage you to pray for leaders. We had a most inspiring time at the church family prayer meeting on Wednesday when David Todd spoke just for a few minutes. David has gone from here. He's trained, training to be ordained in the Church of England. He's at Oak Hill College with five others from this church. And I asked him how we could be praying, not only for him, but for them all. And he spoke, if you were there, you'll know, he spoke passionately about the way some churches were failing to teach anything of the gospel and how if we could get good, faithful Bible teachers um, in these churches, they could turn the churches around, have a huge impact for the gospel on the people who go there and never hear the good news of Jesus. It was really inspiring. And then I said, how can we pray for you? And he said, he asked us to pray that when he and those training with him, left theological college that they would be uncompromising with the truth. He said it's very easy at the moment, surrounded by people who believe the same thing, to be bold and courageous, but it's going to be harder when we're out there. Let's pray that. Let's pray that the pulpits of this land will be filled with men who will teach the Bible faithfully and who will live godly lives. It's why training leaders is such a big part of what we're trying to do here. It's why we've made it a priority in our vision for the next year and for the next 20 years to be raising up leaders. Pray for godly leaders to remain godly and pray for more godly leaders who will teach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Which leads us to our third point as we come to a close, the the way of of good leaders, uh, verses 4 to 7. Look, the, the job of leading God's people is remarkably straightforward. It's not easy, but it is uncomplicated. Look at verse 7. I love verse 7. The lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek instruction. Don't you like that? The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. I love that. The leader's job, do you notice, is not not to discover knowledge, not to invent knowledge, not to search for a word from the Lord. Beware of the preacher who has new revelation. I've got something new for you today. Oh yeah, don't listen. When I get up to speak, my job is not to find new things to say, but to preserve knowledge, verse 7. To pass on what is here in this book, to say no more and no less than the Bible says. The job is summed up in the other expression in verse 7. The leader's job title is messenger of the Lord. See that? I love that. Bible teaches the messenger boys in the kingdom of God. Now that should stop us getting too big for our boots. I'm just a messenger boy. I learned what it was to be a messenger boy when I was 10 years old. I was in the boys' brigade. And uh, in the boys' brigade, you have to do various tasks. And when you've done enough tasks from different sort of um, uh, segments of this this card, you'd get a badge. And when you've got your first badge, you do another load of segments of of these uh, these tasks. You get another badge. And I wanted to get all six badges. And one of the tasks I had to do was to pass on a message. And so one officer in the boys' brigade gave, uh, gave me the message and I had to pass it on to the other. And he gave me the message verbally and I had to remember it as I cycled across town as quickly as my little legs could go. My legs have always been little. And they went as fast as they could and I was really remembering it, remembering it. And I had to pass it on exactly as it was, not leaving anything out and not adding anything in. I was a messenger boy. It's the job of the Christian minister. I never thought it was going to prepare me for this job, but that's the job. Very straightforward and marvellously liberating. People sometimes say to me, how do you think of things to say every week? But that's the whole point, I don't have to. All I have to do is understand what the Bible is saying and then pass it on as it is. It's not always easy, but it is straightforward, isn't it? 
And I think understanding all this makes the job of the listener very straightforward too. As we listen to the preacher, our job is to check that what the preacher is saying is no more, no less than what the Bible is saying. Which is why it is so important to have a Bible in front of us when we listen to the sermon. Otherwise, how can we check that what the preacher is saying is right? might sound right. I might keep saying God is love. You'll say, that's good. See, I don't think I'm infallible. I think the Bible is, but I'm not. So I want you to check that what I'm saying is right because I don't want to lead you astray. And let me assure you, I'm working hard and I'm working even harder having read this because I don't want bull dung on my face. So check what the leader is saying is what the Bible is saying and then secondly, as we come to a close, check what the leader is living is in line with what the Bible is saying. What he's living as well as what he's saying. Look at the wonderful description of the sort of people who should be leading God's people. Verse 6, True instruction within his mouth and nothing false was on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. True instruction in his mouth, nothing false on his lips, uh, passes on the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's what we've been thinking about. But also he practices what he preaches. The second half of the verse, verse 6, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. See, he not only teaches it, but he lives it. No hypocrisy here, unlike the leaders of Jesus' day. Do check out my life. Do check out the life of all the people who live here, uh, who, who live here, who, who preach from here. It does feel as if I live here sometimes. Who, who preach from here? Check out the way we live. And look what happens when godly leaders both teach the truth and live the truth. Verse six again. True instruction was in his mouth. Nothing false was found. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. It's so simple, isn't it? Teach the truth, live the truth, and people become followers of the truth, followers of the Lord Jesus. Live a life which pleases God, teach things that are true to God, and people will turn to God. How different from the leaders of Malachi's day. How different from the leaders of the church of our day, who rather than turn people from sin, verse 8, have turned from the way and by their teaching have caused many to stumble. The Lord's message here is, of, is one of no compromise in his leaders. And so we must stand against church leaders who do not teach the truth and who do not live the truth. We should not put up with them. We should not tolerate them in God's church because God doesn't. We should say to leaders of God's church, teach us the scriptures Give us nothing else. We should say to them, be messenger boys in the kingdom of God. And we should be bold and say to them, if you will not do that job, it might just be the Lord will say, enough. He might say to them, verse 3, because of you I rebuke your descendants, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. Let's pray.